Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. American Glutton Podcast has a Patreon. Do you hate commercials? Well, we've got a Patreon. Do you want bonus episodes? That's on the Patreon. Do you want to hang out and chat in our Discord channel? That's part of the Patreon, too. We even have an option where you can leave me voicemails. All on the Patreon. So check it out today. Patreon.com slash American Glutton. We have a Patreon. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Blood. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show... Please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. American Glutton is brought to you by Trifecta. Trifecta takes all the food you need, cooks it, and ships it to your house. No more grocery stores, no more cooking, no more meal prep. All you have to do is open it and eat it. That's it. Once in a while, I get a little cocky and make my own sauce, but that's very rare. They make all of it for me, and they send it to my house, and they save me so much time, effort, energy, and money, I can't begin to tell you how happy I am to have them as a sponsor. Today on the show, I'm talking to Cyrus Kambada and Robbie Barbaro, who wrote the book, Mastering Diabetes. Please enjoy. Cyrus and Robbie, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank so much you for so much us. for inviting us here, Ethan. We're we're very excited to hang out today. Absolutely. Diabetes is not something, or pre-diabetes is is oddly not something I was afflicted with, even at my heaviest. But I do have a daughter with type one diabetes, so I'm I have my own vested interest in hearing this conversation. I know type two is something that affects a lot of people, um, so I'm I'm fascinated by what you guys are doing. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because in the world of nutrition, you know, over the past like four or five years or so, there has been an explosion of, uh, of 
conflicting philosophies and conflicting viewpoints and the conflict has grown over the course of time and people who are simply looking for a healthier way to live have gotten increasingly confused despite the fact that there's more information available today than ever before. So we've created a little bit of a tornado and yeah. we're here to try and help resolve some of that confusion and give people uh, evidence-based scientific principles that have been working since scientists first started discovering them and still continue to work today. Yeah. I mean, like in the, just in the world of diets, which is really where I'm more, um, am thinking about typically because I've been on, done all these diets, it, you, you could get like almost uh, religious type zealotry about the different types of diets and, and arguments and fights over, you know, vegans versus carnivores. And I, I can't believe we've even gotten to that level now where Correct. there's a group that advocates that plants are harmful to us. And, and the whole thing is really wild. So yeah. What, what, what is the, what is the quick fix that you guys recommend for diabetes? Okay. So you want to, here's the best part. There is no quick fix. We don't Perfect. like quick fixes. Good. Okay. I don't either. Um, we, yeah, we we don't subscribe to any of these like get rich quick schemes, get healthy quick schemes, lose 27 pounds in the next 30 days. Like all of the marketing that you see in the grocery store, in the checkout stand, that's exactly the type of marketing that we can't stand because it's all about short-term improvements, short-term weight loss, short-term calorie restriction that could promote weight loss. And then as a result of that, People who follow this sort of like, I need results quickly mentality end up maybe getting results in the short term, and then they can't sustain those changes over the course of time. And it ends up causing a, a sort of yo-yo pattern that, you know, throws their entire life out of whack. So yeah. we honestly, we hate that. We absolutely hate that. And we have tried to construct an entire philosophy that is, again, it's grounded in science and it basically... Sure, it can work in the short term and it definitely does work in the short term, but it's not designed to only work in the short term. It's designed to work in the short term and the long term and give you long lasting results. So the, the sort of like elevator pitch here, if you will, is that we teach people how to transition to a plant-based diet. And by doing so, by eating more plant-based material, on a meal by meal basis and on a day by day basis, people find that their blood glucose in the fasting state comes down. They find that their post meal blood glucose comes down. They find that their insulin concentration in their blood comes down. Their blood pressure comes down. Their cholesterol comes down. Their body weight comes down. And the beauty here is that when these biomarkers begin to fall, they fall and they don't go back up. And that's the key. That is the key because a lot of these short-term get skinny quick fixes, and I will even put the ketogenic diet into this category of short-term improvements. A lot of the times people end up getting short-term results and then they yo-yo right back up and their weight goes back up and their blood pressure and whatnot. And that's, that's exactly what we're trying to avoid. So, okay. Yeah. For, for it, in my opinion, keto is definitely a get rich quick scheme because a lot of the stuff that people see initially is glycogen loss and they see this big action on the scale, which they equate to fat loss. And, and 
And then when it slows or tapers or even goes up because people are overeating ribeye steaks, it's like something's wrong. And then they're just got to reduce calories while doing keto in order to continue weight loss. So I, I agree with you there. My question is, all of those markers you listed are also associated with weight loss in general. Is that one of your primary goals? Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant point. I'm very glad that you brought that up. So part of the reason why low carbohydrate diets in general, as a class of diets that includes the paleo diet and the ketogenic diet, part of the reason why those diets are so successful and people find that they actually do get significantly improved health is because people lose weight. So if you eat a ketogenic diet and you begin the weight loss process, or you eat a paleo diet and you begin the weight loss process, then you are likely to also find that your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your fasting glucose, your A1C, and your post-meal blood glucose all come down. And that's a really good thing. Okay. But what's important to understand is that weight loss, I like to think of it as like a, a series of dominoes. So in picture that you have like a chain of dominoes in your head, the first domino, if that first domino is weight loss, then all the other dominoes behind it are going to fall in line. And that's a good thing, right? But imagine if you picked up that first domino and you got rid of it and weight loss is no longer part of your regimen. Does that mean that your cholesterol will still come down and your blood pressure will still come down and your fasting glucose will still come down and your post-meal blood glucose and so on and so forth? And the answer is, if you're eating a low carbohydrate diet, that is not a true statement, right? If you're eating a plant strong diet or a plant heavy diet or a plant centric diet or a plant based diet, the answer is yes. So weight loss can happen on a plant-based diet, but it doesn't have to happen in order to drive a number of biomarker changes that will not only come down, but stay down in the long term. So all of those things can be improved. And I just want to, I just want to be clear. So I really understand this. It's not veganism you're talking about. Great question. Okay. So veganism is a state of mind. Veganism refers to eating a plant-based diet and then also changing one's lifestyle so that they kind of reduce their dependence on anything animal. So they don't, they don't have leather jackets. They don't have leather sofas because leather comes from animals. They don't consume honey because honey comes from bees. They don't wear leather belts because that comes from animals, right? So vegans tend to not only eat a plant-based diet, but also have other sort of like environmental and animal rights reasons for eating that way and for living their entire lifestyle that way. And if you want to do that, my hat's off to you. I got no problems with that at all, right? But what we promote, we never use the word vegan ever in any of our you know, programs or marketing or anything. And the reason for that is because we don't really care if you're vegan or not, okay? I don't, I'm not trying to turn you into a vegan. I'm just trying to get you to eat more plants. That's really all we do. None of what you're talking about is, is from a moral position at all. It's all physical. It's all health related. Just exactly. to add to that, to, to be clear, exactly, everything's like what Sarah's saying here is we are adamant about our teachings being evidence-based from peer-reviewed journals. So the entire Mastering Diabetes Method, the book, everything we've written in there is about what do peer-reviewed papers show us about the best way to reverse insulin resistance and become more insulin sensitive than it happens to be a plant-based diet, which is the most accurate way to describe this approach. Okay, let me, let me ask you this because I'm truly unfamiliar with type two diabetes. I mean, I know it exists. I know people have it. I know that 
from what I've read, it is largely associated with diet. That is like the leading cause of type two diabetes or the leading indicator or it. Yeah. Type one diabetes is totally different. So I, I just don't understand type two diabetes as well. And so like my kid, her body just doesn't produce as much insulin as somebody who's insulin resistant. Right. Okay. It's a great topic. It's a great topic. So we're both living with type one diabetes. Okay. Okay. So one of the key tenets of our approach here is that we unify all forms of diabetes by helping people understand that no matter which type of diabetes you're living with, you could be living with insulin resistance. So that includes type one, that includes type 1.5. Now, gestational diabetes, pre-diabetes, type two diabetes, the prerequisite is insulin resistance, okay? But all types of diabetes, you could be living with insulin resistance. So that is the, the underlying component, which basically leads to what we call blood glucose fluctuations, all right? So I'll let Cyrus describe, you know, what is insulin resistance and what causes insulin resistance? Because that really is the cornerstone of everything we're talking about at Mastering Diabetes. Right. Okay, good. Okay, cool. So it sounds to me like, Ethan, what you're trying to figure out is what causes type 2 diabetes and, and what is the sort of like progression to get there in the first place? Is that right? Yeah. And and really just personally, so I can understand if my kid has insulin resistance, we would see that when we have to drastically or, or markedly increase the bolus of insulin that she's receiving for carbohydrates versus somebody whose body's producing insulin. It's just not working as efficiently. Yeah. Very good point. Okay. All right. So this is, this is the, really the crux of the argument here. And I'm so glad we're talking about this because Insulin resistance is the cause of prediabetes and the cause of type two diabetes and the cause of gestational diabetes. And like what Robbie was saying, it's not the cause of type one or 1.5 diabetes. It just so turns out that people who eat a low carbohydrate diet when diagnosed with type one or 1.5 end up eating themselves into an insulin resistant state. Okay. Right. But if we back up and we say, okay, you don't have diabetes right now. And we're trying to prevent you from developing diabetes. But on the way to get there, um, there is a, there's a progression. You don't just magically wake up one day and have type 2 diabetes, okay? So the very basis, you're non-diabetic. Non-diabetic basically means that you don't have any association with high blood glucose. There's no irregularities in your blood glucose control. And um, you are not in an insulin resistant state, okay? If from that point you progress to insulin resistance, what that effectively means, a simple way to think about it is that there are effectively two problems that are happening simultaneously. Number one, the ability of glucose in your blood to get into your muscle and into your liver has gone down. Okay. So glucose entrance into your liver and muscle have gone down. That's number one. And number two, as a result of that, your pancreas is now over secreting insulin in order to try and drive more glucose into your liver and muscle right? So you have basically a chicken and egg scenario. The chicken is that, or sorry, not a chicken and egg scenario. You have basically two dominoes. The first domino is that your muscle and liver have become less responsive to insulin. And as a result of that, less glucose can get inside of them. And secondarily, your pancreas is like, huh, that's a problem. Let me just go make more insulin to see if I can fix this problem. Right? Right. So the question really becomes, well, what caused insulin resistance in the first place? Okay. 
So this is the thing that is very highly debated on social media and on YouTube. And it is frustrating just how debated this is, because if you go to the scientific literature, there's a little bit of a controversy, but it is, it is much more clear in the literature, in the scientific literature, what causes insulin resistance than it is in the general public. And if you look at the scientific papers, what you'll find is that diets that are high in lipids, AKA fatty acids and triglyceride in particular, uh, set the stage for insulin resistance. So a simple way to think, go ahead. Sorry. I just, just to kind of, um, put, put a spotlight on what you're saying and, and back this up. I think that a lot of people who do these low carb diets, think of things like pizzas and ice creams and cakes as carby foods. When in fact, by energy, they have more fat than carbs. And I've even yes. seen a graph, graph recently that showed the rapid decline since the 80s of America's consumption of sugar and the rapid spike of obesity. So it, it's, it is kind of weird that the biggest thing out in the world right now, at least from what I'm inundated with, is that we're just overeating sugar or high fructose corn syrup, because this is actually a, a graph that showed carbohydrate intake since the 80s was on a decline and obesity has been skyrocketing. Yeah, exactly right. So the less carbohydrate that people consume, the higher the uh, obesity risk. So with a lot of these sort of associations between one variable and another, it's really kind of hard to say this variable is responsible for this result. Sure. Right. You might be able to say, okay, well, Americans are eating less carbohydrate in general and there's more obesity. So maybe there's an association between them. You might also say, well, you know, there's less homeless people living in San Francisco today and there's more obesity. So therefore homeless people have something to do with obesity, but it's, right. you know what I'm saying? It's like, it, no, it's hard I, to like a hundred percent, but like right. pizza for me, if I think about pizza, I'm not thinking about that. It's a carby meal for me. That's a very fatty meal. You're absolutely right. There's no question about it. So let's talk about fatty meals here in particular, because there's so much marketing around eating foods that are high in fat and avoiding carbohydrate, anything. Okay. So let's just to say that you decided that you wanted to eat a fat rich meal because you're eating a ketogenic diet and that's what you've been told to do. So you might go, eat, give, me an, give me an example of a, a ketogenic meal that you have eaten when you were eating a ketogenic diet. When I was being extraordinarily strict and I still was kind of um, withholding myself from eating everything I wanted to eat, like meaning portions, my very clean version of keto would be chicken thighs with skin on them, cooked with oil and a few sprigs of broccoli with olive oil. And the oil was like a freebie. You, you cannot put too much oil on these things. You cannot put too much oil on these things, meaning the ketogenic meaning, diet doesn't tell you not to use oil? Meaning it encourages oil use because if you eat too much protein, you will knock yourself out of keto. So you gotta make sure that you're maintaining your fat intake. Yeah, exactly right. So you just hit it on the head. Okay, so we're talking about chicken breast, with the skin thigh. No, chicken the breast thigh. was way too lean. Couldn't eat a chicken breast on keto. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Chicken thigh with the skin, with olive oil on the chicken, plus olive oil on the asparagus as well. Correct? Yeah. And, and the, the vegetable was 
you know, thought of as a fiber supplementation. And throughout the day, I would make sure through green vegetables not to get more than 30 grams of carbohydrates. Correct. You're trying to keep your net carbohydrate intake less than 30 grams per day. Exactly yeah, but right. but I never did the this has fiber, so I'm gonna minus it. I would go, what is how many grams of carbs is in this broccoli? Okay, mm-hmm. I can't eat more than that. Okay, perfect. So you're describing exactly um, the, the a very strict ketogenic uh, diet in which you're consuming something like 70 to 80% of total calories in fat right. with usually about 10 to 15% calories from protein, actually, sorry, 15 to 20% of calories from protein. And then the remainder is going to be in um, carbohydrate, which usually is something like 5% of total calories in carbohydrate. Okay. So you eat that fatty meal with the chicken thigh with the skin, with the olive oil and the asparagus. And that ends up becoming a very fat rich meal. So the fat that you are consuming is predominantly in a, uh, uh, in a, a structure called a triglyceride and a triglyceride, as the name implies is basically a glycerol backbone with three fatty acids attached to it. So try for three and glycerol means glyceride. So triglyceride is three fatty acids attached to a glycerol backbone. When you consume those triglyceride molecules, they basically go in your mouth, travel down your esophagus into your stomach. Inside of your stomach is where there's a, is like a, an acid bath. You can think of it that way. And that's where proteins begin to get unfolded from their native conformation and they become linearized and where there's the sort of preparation for food digestion happens. The, the food, the, the partially digested food material inside of your stomach is then passed to your small intestine. Inside of your small intestine, that material is called chyme, C-H-Y-M-E. And chyme is basically partially digested food material. The chyme is then acted on by a whole collection of enzymes that come from number one, your liver, number two, your pancreas, and number three, the walls of your small intestine. Okay. So your small intestine is literally like a, a bioreactor in which there are inputs from your liver, from your pancreas, and then also from your small intestine itself. And those enzymes are specifically designed to act upon the partially digested food material and completely digest it. And when I say completely digest it, I mean, take very long, complicated structures and break them down into simpler structures and then into individual units. And those individual units can then be transported through the walls of your small intestine and transported into your blood. So when it comes to fatty acids in particular, the triglycerides end up inside of your small intestine. Inside of your small intestine is where the glycerol and the three fatty acids are broken apart from one another. So the glycerol kind of goes on to do its thing. Okay. Uh, The three fatty acids then are then absorbed through the walls of your small intestine and they are put into what are these, what are called chylomicron particles. So the chylomicron particles have one job. And that one job is to take the fatty acids that came from the meal that you just ate and deliver those to your adipose tissue, your muscle, and your liver. Those are the three destinations. Okay. So those chylomicron particles, think of them as like little Amazon delivery trucks. There's billions of them. And their job is to basically just go and put all the fat that you just ate, put it somewhere. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, so in an ideal world, those chylomicron particles would go directly to your adipose tissue and put 100% of the fat inside of your adipose tissue. And the reason why I say 100% is because your adipose tissue, your fat tissue is actually a very safe place to put fatty acids and to keep them for long periods of time. It is enzymatically and and, uh, mechanically designed to absorb fatty acids when possible, when they're present, to lock them up into triglyceride molecules again and hold on to those triglyceride molecules for days, weeks, months, or years, depending on how much supply is present. So that's actually a great place to put fat. But most people think fat tissue equals bad, fat equals bad. And that is a true statement when there is excess fat tissue inside of your uh, abdominal cavity or you know inside of your uh, subcutaneous layer as well. Right? So in an ideal world, those chylomicron particles would deliver the fatty acids only to your adipose tissue. But what ends up happening is that the chylomicrons deliver to your adipose tissue, but then there's a spillover. And the spillover ends up going inside of your liver and inside of your muscle. That is okay to a certain extent. Your liver and muscle have the ability to absorb fatty acids from the chylomicron particles and store them so that they can be used into the future because those fatty acid molecules are a fuel and they can be used to burn for ATP. But your liver and muscle have a very small reservoir, a very small storage capacity for fatty acids. So when you're consuming a high fat diet, it is very easy to overwhelm your liver and overwhelm your muscle with excess fatty acids that goes beyond their physiological design. So as a result of that, when you eat one fatty meal after another fatty meal, after another fatty meal, what ends up happening is that the excess fatty acids that get put into your liver and muscle end up accumulating over the course of time. And this is where you go directly into the scientific research and say, okay, well, what problem does that present? And what the scientific research has shown in these like unbelievably sophisticated and very eloquent designs is that when you store excess lipid inside of your muscle tissue called a myocyte or store excess lipid inside of your liver tissue, which are, which are made up of mainly hepatocytes, then those excess fatty acids end up negatively impacting the insulin receptor on that same cell. Mm. Okay. So a cell has hundreds or even thousands of insulin receptors on the outside environment. And these are these little like antenna that are sticking up into the outside environment and they're just waiting for insulin to show up. Okay. 
But what happens is that when you first put a collection of fatty acids inside of that cell beyond its design, then those fatty acids actually undergo a whole collection of biochemical transformations. They end up creating these particles called ceramids and diacylglycerols and yada, 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 fancy names. Those derivatives of those fatty acids end up negatively affecting the insulin receptor. So the insulin receptors are still there. They're just not as functional. Is, and it, that's, is it because they've, they, they don't want any more of what you seem to be putting into it? That's exactly right. It is a, it is a self-defense mechanism. So effectively what a cell is trying to do and cell inside of your muscle or liver, they're like, okay, let's, let's think about this. There's a whole bunch of fatty acid material that's coming in here. We didn't ask for it. It's beyond my design. There's nothing I can do to prevent more of this fatty acid from coming in because Ethan keeps putting it inside of his mouth, right? But as a, as a biological unit, if we're going to try and figure out a way to try and block more energy from coming into the cell, we can block the ability to communicate with insulin, or we can significantly reduce the ability to communicate with insulin. Because if we do that, then we can lower the amount of fatty acids that enter, and we can significantly lower the amount of amino acids and glucose that enter this tissue as well. And that's a good thing. So as a self-defense mechanism, they basically block the single most powerful anabolic hormone in your body, insulin, okay? The single most powerful hormone responsible for fuel storage and uptake. And they basically say, hey, insulin, I don't want to talk to you right now because if I can not really communicate with you, then I can protect myself against excess energy accumulation. So that's why they do it. So as a result of that, when there's less insulin receptors that can now respond to insulin, what that means is that in that state, that is classic insulin resistance. You then decide that you're going to eat something that contains carbohydrate. It could be a banana. It could be a piece of bread. It could be, uh, I don't know, a couple of spoons of black beans. It could be some quinoa. Anything that's either refined carbohydrate or whole carbohydrate, you put into your mouth. It then goes directly into your stomach, into your small intestine. The glucose from those carbohydrate molecules gets put into your blood and transported to your liver and muscle. Now, here's where insulin gets involved. Insulin goes, knock, knock, liver, muscle. There's glucose in the blood. Now's your time to take it up. Do you want to take it up? And both of those tissues respond by saying, uh-uh-uh, remember, I'm not paying attention to you right now because I'm intentionally blocking you so that I can protect myself against taking on more energy. I don't want it. So as a result of that, glucose is like, huh, well, that didn't really work. So now glucose is trapped in your blood and insulin is trapped in your blood as well because insulin can't physically dock onto its receptor as effectively. So what happens is that when somebody first eats a fat-rich diet, and then in addition to that, tries to add carbohydrate energy to that, the net result is that there is an elevation of glucose in your blood, or glucose gets trapped in your blood, and insulin gets trapped in your blood, causing what's called hyperglycemia, which is elevated blood sugar, and hyperinsulinemia. And the two of those are classic insulin resistance. So when you go to the doctor, your fasting blood glucose is now elevated. It's supposed to be under hundred, but now you're at 107 or you're at 113. So now you're in the pre-diabetes category. Okay. So I'm a little bit concerned because you're trending towards type two diabetes, but let's just watch this. Let's just monitor it. That's what most doctors say. Right. And then in addition to that, if they're very thorough, they will also measure your insulin concentration in the fasting and post meal state. 
and they are likely to find that your insulin in the fasting state is nice and low. But when you do consume carbohydrate, your insulin values go extremely high. Okay. Classic insulin resistance. So I hope this isn't too complex, but the idea here is that by eating a fat rich diet, you are lowering your carbohydrate tolerance. You are suppressing your carbohydrate tolerance. And as a result of that, that means that carbohydrate metabolism doesn't function as well. Insulin doesn't function as well. Glucose gets trapped. And as a result of that, your blood glucose gets elevated as a secondary effect of a high fat diet. But most people don't really know this and it's a little bit, you know, there's many steps involved. So what ends up happening is that from the user's perspective, the user goes, oh, okay, let me think this through. I'm eating my ketogenic diet. And then I ate one banana and I checked my blood glucose and now it's high. So I guess the banana is the problem. I guess carbs are bad for me. The reason my glucose went high is because a banana is sugar and sugar's bad for me and sugar's going to make me more diabetic and sugar's going to make me fat. Therefore, I should avoid bananas. I should avoid quinoa and rice and whole grains and potatoes because when I eat those foods, my blood glucose goes high. So then they lower their intake of those even more than it already was. And they continue to eat more fat, rich food, more red meat, more white meat, more fish, more eggs, more dairy products, more olive oil. And then they end up accumulating more and more and more insulin resistance over the course of time. Yeah. Look, I, I would never make any argument that any, any aspect of the American diet is, is healthy. Like you look at any, you go anywhere in America and you look at just what general generally is available as food. And by the way, I'm talking about from like Staples and Home Depot to the gas station to what people are buying for their kids for dinner. It all seems really unhealthy to me. However, I also think that the the thing that's been pushed in the media and and amongst people on social media is that it's unhealthy because it's so full of sugar and I, 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 it doesn't for me, it doesn't matter. It's unhealthy either way, whether whether we're going to look at something and go like this is full of fat and it's unhealthy or it's full of sugar and it's unhealthy. I don't think Twizzlers are very good for you. I also don't think a Big Mac's very good for you. Right. But I would never, ever, ever think of a Big Mac as a carby meal. That for me would be a fatty meal. Yes, very, very good point. And what you're pointing at here is this this a term called uh, nutritional reductionism. It's basically just a fancy way of saying, let me take this food that is actually inherently complex, that has carbohydrate, fat, protein, vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals. And let me just point a finger at it and say, huh, an orange, an orange is just a ball of vitamin C. Okay. You're reducing the food into one thing, which you think it is. Okay. A banana is nothing but a bunch of sugar. Okay. I'm going to reduce it to just being sugar. Right. And, and it's just like, it doesn't really serve anybody to play the game of reductionism. And most of the time when people try and reduce a food into one thing, they're not correct. Right. Well, okay. For me, a banana is almost strictly potassium. Like that's if I, you know, if I work out really hard and sweat a lot, that's when I go for a banana. But, um, for people who are thinking this way, who who have, you know, pre-diabetes, so you guys are not into high protein at all. 
Okay, so let's define high protein because there's also a lot of confusion about what the term high protein actually means. Do you have a, a, an actual definition for what you mean when you say high protein? For me, high protein is 50% of my calories are coming from protein. 50% of your calories. Okay, that's definitely high protein. Yeah. Um, so the answer is no, we're not, we're not into a high protein diet. And again, that's not because I have some like personal vendetta against protein by any stretch of imagination. It's because if you look in the research, there's actually some fascinating research uh, that is actually performed in people with type one diabetes. And the reason why they chose type one diabetic subjects is because people with type one diabetes don't manufacture and secrete a significant amount of insulin. So that's a good thing because that makes them very good test subjects. You can control how much insulin you provide to them from the outside world. And as a result of that, you can do a bunch of manipulation in people with type one diabetes, and you can measure what effect it has on the amount of insulin that's required. So long story short, there've been many papers, four, five, six, seven different papers that have been published by very high quality research groups that have demonstrated that when you consume anything greater than about 28 grams of protein in one single meal, okay, somewhere between 28 and 75, which is a big range, but starting at 28 and going upwards of 75, what that does is it leads to a significant, what's called late postprandial hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia. In English, what that means is that the first three hours of your blood glucose profile when you eat that meal is totally normal. There's no deviation from a standard diet. So your blood glucose might come up by 20 points or 30 points, and then it comes right back down to baseline. Everyone's happy. But then starting at the three hour marker, that's when your blood glucose begins its rise and it starts rising and rising and rising and rising and rising. And then in addition to that, because your glucose is rising, your pancreas starts to manufacture more insulin. So now the amount of insulin in your blood starts to go up and up and up and up and up. So that's why we refer to it as a late postprandial, meaning, you know, three hours after you eat a meal, hyperglycemia and hyperinsulinemia, meaning both elevated glucose and elevated insulin. And that can lead to a 65% increase in your insulin production from one meal, one it, meal. Is that because the body has the toughest time breaking down protein that there's that delay? Yeah, it's because, so there's, there's actually many different uh, aspects of protein. Protein metabolism is unbelievably complicated. It really is. Uh, protein metabolism makes carbohydrate metabolism look like a joke, honestly. So the reason I say that is because, um, amino acid uptake at the level of the liver and the muscle has its own dynamics associated with it. It's got its own sort of transporters and its own hormonal signals that allow, uh, amino acids to get in, in the first place. Then in addition to that, you also have amino acid, uh, sorry, you have hormones that are secreted by your stomach and secreted by your small intestine that govern amino acid metabolism as well. Then you have your liver, which is capable of secreting glucagon. I'm sorry, you have your, the alpha cells in your pancreas, which secrete glucagon to go knock on the door of your liver to say, Hey liver, can you release some more glucose into the blood? Blah, 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 blah. But my point is that due to a collection of multiple different mechanisms, um, when you consume a high protein meal, a single meal, and of course, if that meal is repeated multiple times, then you can expect a higher blood glucose in the late postprandial phase. And um, protein itself is an insulin dependent fuel. 
So if you want to get amino acids inside of your liver and inside of your muscle, those amino acids require insulin. They just don't require as much insulin as glucose does, but they definitely do require insulin. So it's a very complex set of both hormonal and, um, you know, transport mechanisms, which govern blood glucose and protein. And the net result is that more protein leads to higher glucose and higher insulin dependency. And fat also, ketones require glucose. All, all fuel into the body requires, uh, sorry, insulin, right? Yes, that's exactly right. So ketones definitely do require insulin. They require, they require small amounts of insulin. But the benefits of the reason why people are, uh, the reason why a ketogenic diet was discovered in the first place was because they did experiments on kids back in the 1970s with intractable epilepsy, basically a form of epilepsy in which uh, these kids are getting seizures no matter what type of lifestyle they choose to live. So uh, researchers decided that they wanted to try and experiment to see what would happen if they lowered their carbohydrate intake, like significantly lowered their carbohydrate intake. And what they found was that when they did that, the incidence or the, uh, the frequency of seizures went down dramatically. And that's good because when we're talking about intractable epilepsy for young kids, this is a life-changing, absolute life-changing dietary modification. Okay. Multiple seizures today, uh, you know, per day to one seizure per month completely changes your life in a good way. Right. Yeah. So there's an application for ketogenic diets, no questions asked, but even in those young kids, when they followed them over the course of two to three to four years, what they found was that there were a whole list of side effects that came along for the ride. Okay. And some of those side effects included things like, you know, severe dehydration. Um, and, uh, one of them in particular was high LDL concentrations, like significantly high LDL concentrations, which is the bad cholesterol. And as a result of that, some of these kids were not eight capable of keeping this diet up in the long term because it became too dangerous for their cardiovascular health. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Yeah, I do know one uh, guy with type 1 diabetes who went um, onto a ketogenic diet and he had short-term success. He he was very happy, was bolusing less with insulin. 
And then, you know, a year into it, he got a physical and his doctor was like, you're killing yourself. It's this is worse. Your all your markers are worse than they had been prior. Just just do what you were doing before. And so he went back and he, and he you know, he's now bolusing more, but he's also doing better on all other fronts. Yeah, exactly. This is a right. Super important point. It's a super important point because people living with type one diabetes, your daughter, Cyrus, myself, we are perfect examples, perfect study subjects for what lifestyle choices we can make to improve our insulin sensitivity or become more insulin resistant because we monitor how many grams of carbohydrate we're consuming. We test our bug glucose frequently or wear a CGM and we know exactly how much insulin we're injecting. Whereas you don't know how much insulin your pancreas is producing at any given time. No idea. So yeah. We are these amazing test subjects. And what we're looking to do when you're living with type 1 diabetes, you're looking to inject the same amount of insulin your pancreas would have normally secreted. So the type 1 diabetes community is oftentimes making a mistake. They're trying to get down to as low and low and low as humanly possible. They're trying to get to zero, which unfortunately we can't do yet. One day, hopefully we'll figure that out. And they're missing the bigger point here because it's okay to use insulin when you're living with insulin-dependent diabetes. You're looking to just use the appropriate amount and make sure you have an overall healthy diet to prevent the complications that are associated with all forms of diabetes. And that's a huge tenet of our program. And as Cyrus was alluding to earlier, yes, our program not only does it work in the short term, it also works in the long term. And the number one cause of death for people living with all forms of diabetes is heart disease. It's not actually high blood glucose readings. So we have to address that at the root cause. And that's why, again, this overall discussion of insulin resistance is so important. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. So it just, just last thing, and I know we all kind of have to go soon, but I want to, I want to know, because for the people who think of a pizza as a, a carb meal, you say eat higher carbs, but is is that kind of why you talk about plant-based because somebody's going to go high carbs. So that's Twizzlers and donuts, right? Which a donut, another one for me, that's a fatty food and not a carby right. food. Yeah, exactly right. So we got to be very, very, very clear in our language when we're talking about eating carbohydrate. I don't even like to use the word carb because it's not a real word, but what we educate people about doing is eating more whole carbohydrate rich material. Okay. Whole carbohydrates include fruits, starchy vegetables that grow in or on the ground, like potatoes and squash. Okay. So fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, which are beans, peas, and lentils, and then whole grains. Okay. Those are the four carbohydrate rich food categories that we educate people about eating. We are not telling people to eat more cookies or crackers or chips or pastas or sodas or sugar sweetened beverages or uh, pastries or donuts, none of that stuff. Okay. Those are refined carbohydrate foods. And what people generally do is they say, oh, I'm eating a low carb diet. And what they mean to say is I'm trying to eliminate junk food. That's literally what they should be saying. But in reality, in that process, they also look at, you know, a potato or they look at a banana or a mango and they're like, Ooh, you're bad for me too. Right. And we're saying, no, no, no. There's a very strong separation between the processed manufactured carbohydrates and the whole carbohydrates. So if you follow the mastering diabetes method, the way that we've outlined it, it's very simple. 
eat more carbohydrate rich whole food in a low fat setting. Period. End of story. That's it right there. Right. So first lower your total fat intake. And when we say lower your total fat intake, we're saying somewhere between 10 and 15% of total calories. And then once you're at that level, then your carbohydrate tolerance will rescue itself or will recover. And you will have the ability to eat more carbohydrate rich material. And if you get your carbohydrate rich material from whole sources, then you are doing all tissues a service. You are maximizing your fiber intake. You're maximizing your micronutrient intake. And you are lowering all of these problematic biomarkers in the short term and in the long term. Right. I mean, that, that sounds, it sounds very, sounds very good. Um, I bet it's hard to convince people to do that though. You know, it, it is. And it isn't, it's like, it's like what we find is that the people who are already open-minded to eating a plant-based diet, they don't have any really qualms with doing what we suggest. It's the, it's the other side. It's the people who think that carbohydrates are going, you know, they look at a potato and they feel like they gain weight right? Or they've been indoctrinated into the carnivore camp or indoctrinated into the low carb camp. And like, these are, these are good people. They're fantastic human beings. There's no problem with that, but it's very easy to sort of, um, once you're in that philosophy to point a finger at anything plant-based, yeah, whether it's mastering diabetes or anything else and say, Oh, you plant-based people are nothing but a bunch of vegans who don't know what you're talking about. Right. Well, right? I know for me, the, uh, keto was interesting because it was, you can eat all you want. That was one of the things, like you never have to restrict your food. It was cheese. It was processed food, salami. It was all, it was, it was junk food that I didn't have to control. I had to control carbohydrate junk food, but I didn't have to control for this. And then that really just didn't work very long at all. So it became this very strict thing of chicken thighs and a few sprigs of broccoli as a supplementation. Right. And eventually that didn't work. And so when I found that I was restricting total calories anyway, I was like, well, I'm just doing a diet now. This doesn't make any sense at all. Um, I, I can't wait to uh, get my 17 year old daughter who has type one to read this book. And uh, I thank you guys so much. This has been really awesome. For sure. Uh, thank you for having us here on this podcast. I feel like there's so many people who are looking for a non fad based approach to really mastering diabetes and like getting rid of it and just wiping off their medical record. Um, so, you know, if you find yourself as one of those listeners and you're interested in doing it, then just go to Amazon, pick up mastering diabetes. Um, it's a, you know, it's changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. And we hope that you're the next person. Robbie Cyrus. Thank you. And now for the Q and a, I've got a question for you today from Scott. Hi, Scott. Scott says, hello, Ethan. I'm starting to change my life for the better, and I'm a hunter and avid fisherman. Eating venison and fish on a regular basis, I've been told that will help in weight loss. People say, sorry, no, no. He says he's been told that won't help in weight loss because people say there's not enough fats in it. What are your thoughts? Uh... I mean, venison fish on a regular basis. Well, look, I mean, I mean, that's a very complicated question. If that's all he's eating, um, yeah, I don't think uh, venison and fish is a is a is a recommendable long term diet. Okay, but like, if that's if that's part of what you're eating, that's perfectly fine. They're great protein sources, um, especially if you're dieting. Uh, because they are lean protein sources. 
Mm-hmm. So it's not going to, it's not going to mess your weight loss up, but I, I wouldn't, um, have that be like, you know, if you're going to go carnivore or something like that, it, I, I would not suggest doing it on venison and fish. And so if the, you did go on fish, it would, it should be like a very fatty fish, like salmon. And then you want to eat all the skin and stuff like that too. Wait, why? Maybe I'm really missing. I don't get it. Why well, do you want to make sure you have enough fat in it? Well, you need a certain amount of fat. Ah, you, like okay. you, your, your body actually, you know, um, you have to have a certain amount of fat, right? Okay. Um, number one, just for your body to function properly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a lot. You don't need a lot. And certainly fish has some and certainly venison has some, but they're very, very lean. So I think in order to get all the fat, like there, there, there was, that's why like the Inuits eat, uh, walruses and whales and stuff like that. Because if they ate only fish, it would not be enough for them to subsist on. Hmm. Um, so they had to eat some mammals too. Um, uh, so I, you know, as far as like a, 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 a dietary scheme, if that's it, not recommendable. You know, but as like, as far as lean protein sources, those are fantastic lean protein sources. You might need to supplement with a little bit of fat from elsewhere, like some olive oil or, you know, even like, even if you bought, um, you know, uh, cod liver oil or omega-3 fatty acids or something, I don't know what amount of those you'd have to take and it might give you a bad stomach ache if you tried to get all your your uh fats from omega-3s supplemental supplementally um but i i mean venison and and fish are a fantastic lean protein source nice okay that's awesome i don't know if i've ever had venison that's a side note it's delicious i'll tell you that much Okay, yeah. check it out. Yeah. Well, thank you for that question. Let us know how it goes. And for anyone else listening, if you have a question that you would like answered on this podcast by Ethan, please email it to us at AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee. You can follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. <laughs>